A very warm welcome, everyone, to our 21st decolonial learning session by Adeles, which is a pendicolonial network based in Amsterdam. My name is Max de Ploeg. I will today be interviewing a very special guest and international speaker, Sabelo Nedlovu Gatsengi, which I will introduce more elaborately later in the session um, about the decolonial learning sessions. These are monthly sessions that our organizations uh, host via Zoom, and we record these sessions to make them available on YouTube, on our website, and which we include also in our blog with reading tips and watching documentaries, this kind of thing, so you can get more into depth. And we created out of our first year's uh, decolonial learning session as well a syllabus that you can find on our website and you can follow us on our uh, mailing list or via Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it. Um, and we give these uh, decolonial learning sessions uh, on donation basis because we think that knowledge should be freely accessible for everyone. But if you would like to donate to give something back, we also use your donations to give something back to our speakers as well. So do feel free to donate for which you can find the information on our website and we will send also in a thank you mail afterwards. Um, so that is all about the practicals for this decolonial learning session. So I can start my introduction. So this, uh, the goal of this session that you signed up for is to talk more about what the meaning is of decolonization in the 21st century. As you all know, uh, decolonization was a term used uh, after the Second World War a lot when countries were gaining their independence, but we still see that uh, colonialism has uh, left a huge mark on the countries on how they are governed. And you can see fictional borders being created and legacies in legal, social, cultural, economic and military infrastructures to name just a few dimensions. Um, and the question then arises, how can we talk about decolonization or conceptualize decolonization in the 21st century when we still see that this coloniality is being reproduced. And in the second part of the interview, we'll also go more into um, decolonial practices. What can we learn from it? What are kind of conditions? And how can we maybe draw inspiration for this? And we will do this with, together with Sabelu Nudlovu Gatseni. And um, Sabelu is a professor and chair of epistemologies of the Global South with an emphasis on Africa. He's a leading decolonial theorist with over hundreds of publications in the field of African history, African politics, African development, and decolonial theory. Uh, theory. His latest major publications are Epistemic Freedom in Africa, uh, Deprovincialization and Decolonization, Rethinking and Unthinking development perspectives on inequality and poverty in South Africa and Zimbabwe, which was published in 2019. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us, uh, Sabelo. And thanks, um, Max. Thanks. You're welcome. We are honored to have you. Um, so before we first go, you know, into what decolonization can mean, I guess we first need to understand what is colonialism and what is this coloniality as a term, because I know some of our listeners, this is quite new. So can you maybe first give them an introduction why this concept of coloniality is used and what it entails? <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you, Max. I, I have a bit of a neck in cough, so I hope I won't cough. Hello, hello. But uh, we're, we're thank on you a so much. 
we have a safe distance so uh that's okay, good. So thank you so much for for the invitation i think uh, maybe we need to think about um first of all three three concepts before we understand um <clears throat> coloniality the first one being colonization and then the second one being colonialism and then the third one being coloniality and uh, i'm i'm desegregating them this way because i want uh, us to understand what we're talking about uh, first let's go to the concept of colonization colonization in simple terms was an event of colonialists coming conquering uh, and administering a colony. And uh, because of that, colonization can be thought of as an event. For instance, in my country of birth in Zimbabwe, we can date it to 1890. They colonized in 1890 and then they moved out in, uh, in 1980. If you talk that way, you'll be talking about colonization and then the second concept which is the concept of colonialism colonialism is not an event colonialism is a system of uh, power which was used by the colonialists to administer the colonies and it is this system of power which is very resilient and which is still with us today and uh, to to speak about more specifically the latin american uh, coloniality modernity scholars they then gifted us this concept of coloniality so as to to articulate the continuation of colonial like power structures long after decolonization. So mm -hmm. when we're speaking about coloniality, we're really speaking about a modern power structure. And uh, to acknowledge, we need to acknowledge the Peruvian sociologist, uh, Anibal Criano, for coining the concept of coloniality. But he was not the only one who was trying to name the, continua the continuation of colonialism after decolonization. You can go as far back as 1965 when Kwame Nkrumah coined the concept of neo-colonialism, whereby he was also talking about the continuation of colonial domination after the attainment in quotation marks of political independence. And then you can go back to 1981, also to the work of Nguk Wathiongo, uh, when he was talking about uh, the concept of the colonization of the mind. So all of these, these thinkers, they were really trying to speak to the concept of, uh, of the continuation of colonial-like relations after the attainment of uh, political independence. So if we speak of, of coloniality today, we're speaking really about a transnational power structure. And if we, we, we go further, we're speaking about sort of a planetary 
if not a global power structure, uh, which 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 actually is spread all over, all over the the, the world, and this is why you find uh, <clears throat> thinkers like Walter D. Mignolo uh, positing that coloniality is all over, is not over. So I think the concept of coloniality names that overness, that all overness of colonialism in the modern times. Thank you, uh, Sabelu. I think this is very important also to distinguish eh, what you mentioned that colonization was an event, an historic event, and then it moves on and continues into the present with all these uh, power structures into coloniality. Could you maybe, um, um, uh, I say, unravel a bit more what is then this power structures if you would name it make it concrete mm. what are forms that we can see this colonial power structures working in today i think we can see it in many dimensions um of course uh, from building on the on the on the gift from the latin american uh, uh modernity coloniality school uh, one 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 area in which it manifests itself is really in the in the conception of being human, whereby there is the social classification of human population in accordance with the race, and also the gendering of the of 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 the of the of the human population in in such a way that it then events an invisible social pyramid in which at the top of that social pyramid you will find what we call today whites. And then maybe in the meekly, you will find those whom are described as brown or yellow. And then as you go down that invisible social pyramid, you will find what is described as black. And then you can go even down the pyramid, you will find what are called in native indigenous people. So it is this, so, so, so that's where you will see it. And that structure still stands up to today. Mm. Then, then the second manifestation of coloniality, of course, uh, building on this, <coughs> what, 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 what uh, uh, Slivia Winter and, uh, and uh, Nelson Mantonato Torres calls coloniality of being, is that if you colonize being human itself, fundamentally you have also colonize knowledge because those whom you degrade and they put it in a lower uh, scale in the social pyramid their knowledge is questioned and those like the the native those who are deemed to be native they are literally kicked out of the human family and therefore they are said to have no knowledge at all so so you you can see it manifesting itself in the in the in the knowledge domain and they if we want to be as practical as possible, it manifests itself today in what we call the global economy of knowledge, in which uh, Latin America, Caribbean, uh, Asia, Africa, they become the hunting ground for primary uh, uh, data. And the theory comes from Europe and the North, and the North America. And the, if you want as a scholar to be recognized uh, in the modern westernized university, the, the, the premium and the pressure is that we must publish 
in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a international peer-reviewed journals, and those journals are concentrated in Europe and in North America, and that creates what the the, the philosopher from Benin, uh, Pauline Untonji, uh, calls academic dependence, whereby we end up depending on theoretically on thinkers from a, a very small pool, which is from Europe and, uh, and, uh, and uh, North America. And uh, <clears throat> at the same time, if you want recognition in so-called international recognition, again, you will need to publish in the so-called peer-reviewed international, international journals, which are concentrated in Europe and in North America. And it also manifests itself in the language domain, in which what is the dominant language which is used in the production of knowledge. You will find that you are still, particularly speaking from the African continent, using maybe six uh, languages which were imposed by colonialism that is English, French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, uh, you name it, you name it, there are six of them. They are still the dominant languages which we use to produce knowledge. Uh, and, and, and that is still a manifestation of the, the continuation of, of, of coloniality. And if you use the, the words of, uh, of Nguku Wathiongo, he talks about the linguistic encyclement that were actually encycled by colonial languages uh, in, the, in, the, in the production movement. And uh, you can go on uh, as, as, as my good friend, um, Professor Ramon Grossfogel identified about 15 uh, 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 categories uh, where it manifests itself. And uh, to the extent that the conclusion is that uh, coloniality leaves nothing unsubjected to its power. In other words, even concepts of beauty, what is beautiful and what is ugly, it actually also is subjected to that structure of, of coloniality. If you go to the uh, domain of spiritualities, you will find again that the other forms of beliefs, the other spiritualities are actually uh, <clears throat> what you call delegitimized and they only, only Christianity and, they, and, they, and they is projected as the, the, the legitimate uh, spirituality. So you can, you can go on really, I don't want to, 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 to exhaust the whole night talking about it, but you can go into the domain of, of nature as well. And you, 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 you check that with coloniality, nature is redefined as a natural resource. And there is an attempt to, to extract, to, to elevate the human above nature and then create a false a, a dichotomy that the human is not part of nature when in reality he or she or whatever the description is part of nature. Yeah. So there is really, it is, it is very, 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 very visible in many spheres of our life today. Yeah, and I think uh, you mentioned something really important uh, what was so something that was created under colonialism, eh? this color line, or you are black or white or indigenous, yeah. but you are put in the zone of non-being, right? You're not yeah, human, yeah, not yeah, part yeah. of society anymore. Mm -hmm. And what you can see, uh, and I, this is what I hear you describing, is maybe when the decolonization period happened, it's not set on paper anymore or in law, if you're black, you're not human, right? It's not said mm -hmm. in that way on paper, but 
what you say if as long as you don't speak the european languages or you're not part of their society or way of thinking or you cannot speak back to it then you cannot mm, fully participate in it as a yeah. as a human being and i think this um color line is 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 really um important and i think this example of language like you can only persevere in, in the academy if you speak a european language also already shows if you're part of this mm -hmm. um able to participate and it also in manifests in this most detestable form in also in migrations uh, mm -hmm. whereby who is allowed to move freely and who is asked where are you going every time you meet you go to the border or to the airport you can yeah. actually meet coloniality every day where by the, immediately you you jet into a country you are asked what brings you here other people are not asked what brings them here because the major issue of colonialism was that there was an attempt by colonialists to claim the whole of the planet Earth as their own. If I mm -hmm. can use Achille Bembe's is, is, is thinking as their own and then to make everyone really a visitor, somebody was discovered and somebody yeah. who will move under authorization by those who own the planet Earth. And that is it's one of its manifestations in the present in its most detestable forms. Yeah, no land ownership. And that also comes back to the humanity. I remember um, I was organizing together with indigenous community and they also said um, that they feel like they're squatters on their own land, right? They have to yeah, be yeah, for yeah, yeah. ancestors and generations there. But then on paper, they don't exist. So they don't, uh, they are not the owners. It can still be sold to someone who is in this English speaking English and you are world. raising an important uh, aspect of the how it, it 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 manifests itself in the material domain, mm. the, with the land question being really a big signature of, uh, yeah. of coloniality, in which the even even in the in the former uh, <clears throat> colonies like like New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, there is this neoliberal discourse of recognition that was standing on the lands of the indigenous people, but we don't give it back to them. We no. just acknowledge it, that uh, was standing on the land of this and this and this and this, but we don't really make an effort to say, if we recognize that this land was taken from the people, why are we not making efforts to realistically give it back? So the land, the land question is really another important dimension where it manifests itself. Yeah, and and how would you reflect? Uh, because if we take the period right, you had colonization as an event, you say historic event. Then you had decolonization, trying to get let's say flag independence, mm. and then this coloniality, these power structures, or the way property was divided, not being really uh, decolonized. How would you reflect um, on South Africa during this period? Because um, I know that in South Africa, I don't know if the numbers are now up to date, but like a few years ago, up to 70% of the land that is agriculture uh, is related to agriculture is in possession of white settlers, which are mm -hmm. small or descendants of, uh, mm -hmm. which are minority in the country. And you have two thirds of the country, you know, living below poverty line pre-COVID. Um, can you reflect on... Um, South yeah, Africa... Maybe, if I can, if I can put it this way, 
South Africa is another very, very visible, uh, what we call crime scene of coloniality, if I can put it that way. Uh, it was uh, from the beginning imagined as a little Europe at the southern tip of the African continent. So unlike perhaps Nigeria, where the, the, the settlers were concentrated on the, on the coast, uh, and they had no intention really maybe to settle permanently. Uh, in South Africa, there was this idea that they would turn that part of the world into a little Europe, far away from Europe. And because of that, if, uh, if, if, if we go historically, we will find that all the crimes committed by colonialism were committed in South Africa. Uh, if, 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 you, if, if, if you want to check, enslavement took place in South Africa. Uh, there, was, there was enslavement. So all the crimes which were committed uh, under the banner of, of, uh, of colonial modernity, they took place in South Africa. And uh, it is not surprising that uh, up to now, uh, South Africa became really a site of some of the most recent decolonial struggles. Uh, such as the roads must fall, the fees must fall, because you can see it in in so many names of buildings, names of roads. Uh, you you can see the the signature of uh, of apartheid colonialism in 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 in, in very apparent terms. Uh, and uh, we you don't even need to go to the land because the land there was no movement at all, um, and uh, you will find that right up to the time of the roads must fall in 2015, a, a leading university in South Africa still had the state of Cecil John Rhodes at its center. And that actually is indicative of uh, how deep this issue of coloniality is in South Africa. So, so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a space which I would describe really as a, a very visible crime scene of, 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 of coloniality uh, at the southern tip of the continent. Uh, in which, in which you 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 can you you don't need to be told if you if if you are, you are a visitor, and uh, you go to a city a town called East London, you you become surprised. Is this in Africa where there are all these names of? And uh, you begin to ask who are these, and uh, and uh, even the the monuments are still there, uh, which mm. which celebrate the the the. The Great Trek, the Africana Treks, and and all this, it is still visible. So I think South Africa is really uh, is not is not is not really uh, distinctive, but I think it, in its most detestable forms, it comes out more clearly. Uh, I spent uh, almost twenty years teaching in uh, in the universities in South Africa, and uh, I know that it also manifests itself in terms of the demographic. Uh, imbalances in terms of the professors, uh, really in terms of the racial composition of who who are the professors and who are not the professors even today, in some of the universities. So there yeah. is a there is a clear a clear a clear manifestation of the continuation of coloniality. And I think one argument which we can present for South Africa is that. Maybe one issue which we need to think about more carefully: can can you democratize an undecolonized uh, state? Uh, and I think 
is the same thing which is comparable to 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 the US uh, that the 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 civil rights movement was an attempt to democratize it but can you democratize it without decolonizing it i think this is where our challenge really stands at the moment yeah no and for those who don't know the roads must fall movement was uh sparked by students several years ago in south africa and roads was a colonizer in south africa that university was also named after who got statues and so forth i still think there's a road scholarship also uh, existing but um just for those who who couldn't catch up to that uh, to that part and and i think what you say that the the visibility in terms of staff and i remember when the the roads must fall movement happening for me it was interesting to learn oh wow they are also challenging eurocentric um curriculums but they're in south africa right i, I was protesting the same but being from the netherlands so for me it was an eye-opener that they were challenging the same canon on a, on a different place and uh, i remember reading one of your articles you said something like um uh south africa was de-racialized right this mm. explicit race but not decolonized yeah what then what then what then makes something decolonized or in the process of decolonization what direction are you then aiming for because you can say okay we're now all equal right you put that on paper mm. but what, what does it mean i think again it takes us to two concepts maybe which also help us to to clarify uh, this issue the anti-colonial struggle and the decolonial struggle. I think I think we need to 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 think carefully about those, because the anti-colonial struggle, if we look at it more carefully, it was really to just to replace uh, the colonialists in a physical sense. You occupy the the institutions which they left behind. You Africanize them through populating them with black faces and all that, uh, and then. You, you you just take over from where colonialism left uh, most of the time. That's 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 how I see the the anti-colonial uh, struggles limits. That they 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 were happy to move into the offices. They were happy to move into being vice chancellors. They were happy to move into being professors within universities without destructuring the structures which were imposed through through colonialism. So that. That to me makes it perhaps easier to then distinguish what then is decolonial struggles vis-a-vis -vis, uh, anti-colonial struggles because the, the the decolonial struggles they go on to think about uh, at a structural level what changes do you do at institutional level what changes do you do at interpersonal level what changes do you do and the, and the, and the, that that really takes us uh, not in the maybe to use the Fanonian term, you know the the concept of the European game. It is not about joining the European game. Uh, if if in the in the decolonial struggles, you are questioning the actual rules of the game itself. So so it becomes it becomes uh, from the 1960s, you will find that the issue was sort of like joining the game rather than questioning the rules of the game. And I think we've reached a stage whereby we've realized that you can put black people in, in positions of VCs, in positions of state presidents, but it, sometimes they are sitting at a, on a colonial structure. 
which makes their behavior really, it corrupts them into behaving almost similar to the, to the, to the colonialists. So I think we need really to think carefully about um, the, the decolonization of the 20th, 21st century compared to the decolonization of the 20th of, of, of the of the 20th century in the sense that the taking over of the colonial states must have been a stage in the struggle but not the horizon of the struggle it must not mm. the end of the struggle and they were realizing now that it is important that that stage must actually open a stage for further struggles and uh, the, the, that struggle which we are doing now in the 21st century must actually target coloniality where it is hiding. It is hiding in our psyche. It is hiding in our institutions. It is hiding in our systems. It is hiding in our languages. So it is hiding in all these corners and we need it really to unmask it wherever it is hiding and then deal with it. And I think that's what the decolonization of uh, of the 21st century must do. But I must also say that we need also to think carefully about our understanding of historical processes. The shift from empire to modern nation state is easily celebrated as decolonization. But was it really decolonization? I think we need to think carefully about that shift from empire to modern nation state. What were the forces at play? Of course, we know people uh, fought uh, for that shift. They fought for that shift. But at the same time, the United States was also active in that, in that, in that, in that, in that, in that, in that period from 1919, when Woodrow Wilson comes to the to, to, to the Versailles conference and they, he outlines the 14 points. And the 14th point, the last point is about self-determination. And then in 1941, when they meet for the Antarctic Charter, again, the United States brings the question of self-determination. And the question which we need to ask, was it really an interest in the self-determination of a people? Or what the US was trying to do was to destructure a world organized into empires, into a world organized into nation states. In other words, the world system was rebooting itself and reorganizing itself in a new post-1945 context in which America did not have the physical um, uh, colonies like Britain and, 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 and France, for instance. And it was saying, since the capital has shifted, the glut of capital has shifted from Europe and is now concentrated across the Antarctic. How will we make sure that we, we, we deploy our capital across the world if the world still remain organized into empires? And it had to move to support, to pretend to support the decolonization, not for the purposes of decolonization, but for the purposes that you reorganize the world into nation states, then US capital can march across the world uh, easily than when, when there are monopolies of colonies by Britain. Britain could trade with its own colonies. France could trade with its own colonies. And in that way, they make it difficult for American capital to march across the world. I think that dimension needs also to be, to be, uh, to be, to be, 
to be raised. Then the second issue, which I think also critically we need to take into account, is the idea that the heaven of decolonization is attainment of nation state status. I don't think decolonization is really about that per se, but from an elite point of view and the reproduction of coloniality, decolonization is read as once you become a sovereign nation state, then decolonization has come to an end. But you need to ask the question, whose sovereignty is this? It, the sovereignty of the state is not the sovereignty of the people. It has proven now and again. And you can link that with the rise of uh, what is called the, the, the Arab Spring, when people were really raising against state sovereignties, which were actually suffocating them. And they were trying to recapture uh, the popular sovereignty of the people. And they, you, you can see that in the 21st century, people are beginning to, to, to be clear that state sovereignty does not translate to people's sovereignty. The freedom of the state is not the freedom of the people. If anything, it is the freedom of the elites who are in courts with the global capital and the coloniality. Mm. Thank you, Sabelo. I think this is a very crucial point that also distinguishes the de decolonization as you use it versus what it can mean and the organization of the world through nation states and empires. I think this is really important to uh, distinguish indeed and maybe to give an idea to people listening as well, uh, worldwide there's spoken six and a half thousand languages, and all these languages are part of peoples, and it's it's not meant self-determination for these people, right? Because mm -hmm. you can have a, a country with borders, maybe hundred languages is spoken in it, but there's sovereignty only for yep. maybe you know one language, English, and then maybe certain ethnicities have access to it, but others who are referred to as indigenous or whatnot, uh, they don't have access to this sovereignty infrastructure. And I think this is really important um, uh, uh, to name. But I was also curious, maybe um, because you mentioned then you have, let's say, the elites ruling the different nation states. Mm -hmm. But there's also been a very much um, push from the West to make sure certain kind of people are in the seat. So you can maybe use it as an in between mean not an end goal the nation state but maybe you can use it as a purpose to redistribute or change things in the countries for the better let's say and to give some concrete examples you had uh, Kwame Nkrumah himself of course but also Lumumba or Thomas Sankara so let's say more maybe less explicitly decolonial oriented but more socialist self-determination uh oriented people not always communist but at least social let's say how do you uh and of course they've been cooped against or sanctioned all kinds of measures have taken if a country does start to make it more social but how do you reflect as a decolonial scholar on these efforts the more yeah yeah, yeah. um social anti-imperialist forces okay. that do work with the nation state in fact um, i think also maybe let me raise three issues about uh, what were the possibilities during the shift from empire to, to modern nation states. I think, uh, is it uh, the Congolese uh, scholar, Georges uh, and Dalanja, uh, who said the anti-colonial 
forces had three options at the time of the shift. Uh, the first option was that uh, could they rebuild from what colonialism destroyed? In other words, from the pre-colonial, should they rebuild from there? Uh, should should they use the pre-colonial the pre as a basis to build into the future? Uh, then the second, should they just take over what colonialism bequeathed on them and they try to run with it? And thirdly, should they do the hard part, building something new? So he, he, has, these, he has these three. And then he says, with the first option of building from the pre-colonial, he says the major problem is that the wheel of history cannot be taken. You cannot roll it back. So, so that one becomes out in the sense that you can no longer go back to the pre-colonial. But there were some who, who imagined that they would revive uh, the pre-colonial nations, uh, but uh, it has very few takers. Then the, the second one of uh, taking over what colonialism left and running with it had many takers, many takers. They wanted, to, that was the easiest. People wanted to take that one. But the third one of building something new is what makes me think about Nkrumah, uh, Lumumba, uh, uh, Thomas Sankara, uh, Samora Machel, and many others. That uh, those ones, they were then trying to say, yeah, this is the opportunity to build something new, particularly Pan-African Africa. You know, Kwame Nkrumah was very active in, uh, in trying to bring, to domesticate the Pan-African spirit into, into, into the continent. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the second uh, uh, <clears throat> series of interventions which I want to make, uh, when you mention Nkrumah, Lumumba, Thomas Sankara and the others, is that we cannot generalize about the anti-colonial movements. Uh, some were reformist, some were revolutionary socialist. So you will need to, to, to think really carefully about those. And some were really, they bought into continuation with the capitalist ideology. Uh, uh, you remember uh, Nkrumah's uh, uh, duality with the, the president of, of uh, I, I, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, who was pursuing a capitalist path and the Kuma pursuing a socialist uh, path. And they were, they were competing and Kuma was saying in 10 years, Ghana will have really developed far ahead of Ivory Coast uh, using the socialist uh, uh, ideas. And uh, the, the, the president of Ivory Coast was saying, no, we will be far ahead uh, using the capitalist ideology. And then you go to Kenya. Kenya also continued with the the capitalist ideology, whereas Tanzania, which was next under Julius Nyerere, was experimental in many ways uh, with the African socialism, with Ujamaa villages, up to the, the proclamation of the Arusha Declaration in 1967, which I found to be a very, a very, a very, very, very informative document, even up to today. It might have suffered problems of implementation, but in terms of diagnosis 
of what were the problems, I think it is still correct up to now. So there is really those, but the issue is to go back to, 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 to the thesis that the shift from empire to nation state is not decolonization. Those who tried to invent something new, they were punished severely. And we can actually posit that the modern world system in its Euro North American centric orientation had a way to respond to, to the anti-colonial forces, particularly, especially those which showed the signs of being anti-systemic. Because if you are anti-systemic, it dealt with you violently. Those are the people who were removed from power. Those are the people who were coups were, were sponsored. Those are the people who were subjected to assassinations. Then there are those who were anti-colonial only to join the system. Those ones, of course, they had a long staying power because they were not disturbing the system in the true sense of the word. So those ones, they could be accommodated into the system, but we need also to be careful about this accommodation because accommodation manifested itself by being invited into the United Nations as an as a, as a, as a, as a independent state. But you are put at the lowest echelons, even within that institution, where you become a quantity without, without veto power. Even if you are men, you, you, you get the, the replication of, the, of coloniality even within the United Nations structure. In that Latin America, Asia, Africa, they are coming in numbers but they don't have a veto power. So they become a quantity in the lower echelons of the United Nations structure. Of course, they are given a space to vent whatever they wanted to do and all that, but without veto power, their protestations do not go far. But we need also to nuance a bit by saying it was really the interventions of the Global South leaders at the United Nations, which made even the transition from uh, the idea of self-determination as a principle to self-determination as a right, if we, we are to, to, to use the work of uh, uh, Adam Getachew, the remaking of, of the world after empire. So there was an attempt to turn the United Nations into a Berkeley field again. And they, you turn it into a Berkeley field in which you make the demands, like the demands for a new international economic order within a system which was really just rebooting itself and was not changing itself. So, so I find, I find it, it was very, a very difficult moment for the anti-colonial forces uh, because the system accommodated them into, into an evolving system, but at the same time, it was not giving them the concessions which they wanted. Yeah, and I also think that some governments had very much trouble, even when they gained independence or had a, let's say, more left-oriented um, person that is steering the direction. Um, you could still see that a lot of governments are in debt, for instance, to the IMF, yeah, which yeah, they yeah. also have no influence on it. So yeah. when I looked at South Africa, they paid for decades the bill of the apartheid regime, for instance. But you can see this in a lot of countries. They mm call it then odious debt, is a movement to uh, not repay this debt. 
Um, but you can see that the government has adapt from a former dictator or <laughs> colonial regime um, or apartheid, and then they cannot reform their economy or do anything with it because they had um, yeah, strings attached to it. So I think even in there- fact, In fact, we are raising yeah. an important issue because uh, as, as, as I indicated earlier on that in 1965, when Nkrumah was talking about neo-colonialism, when, when he published that book, Neo-Colonialism, the, the last stage of imperialism, he was really talking about this, this economic control of the economies of Africa after the attainment of political in, independence. But I want also to say that we need to also understand that the challenge was to how do you turn a colonial economy which is outside looking into a national economy which is inside looking. And they, they gave them a window from 1960 to the 1970s to try and do that, uh, to, to try to turn a colonial economy which was fundamentally an outside looking economy. And by outside looking, I mean an economy which is meant to service uh, the, 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 the world capitalist system, uh, the global north, if, if, if we can put it that way. And the Krumas, the Nyerere's, and the, the other nationalists, they were trying to build national economies. And those national economies were supposed to service the people. Uh, the same problem which South Africa is facing today to try to turn the economy to service the people. This is where, where the, 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 the problem uh, uh, arises. And they, if you, you, you read closely, you'll find that from 1960 to 1970s, there is an attempt to allow those economies at least to service the people a bit. And the, the economic growth is, is registered. Uh, the, the, the higher education institutions are flourishing. But if, by mid-1970s, they begin what, 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 what we call it the the rise of the, the, the Washington consensus and the, the return of the neoliberalism and the, the structural adjustment program. And if you read really in its simplest terms, the structural adjustment program was saying, this economy which you were trying to turn in, turn it to look inside, please make it again to look outside if it is to function through deregulation, privatization, and all and 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 all that. So so I I, I can I can see really that uh, that uh, these 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 leaders were trying to fight uh, uh, using national solutions, but the problems were global problems. So because of that, they were able to isolate a few, assassinate uh, uh, Thomas Sankara, uh, depose Nkrumah. Uh, and, and punish a number of those who were, who were revolutionary uh, so that they, they, they put those who are compatible to the system. So this, is, this, this to me confirms our thesis that colonialism did not go away. It remained. It actually put new managers uh, who were African in color, but they were servicing the system. And if you were trying to service your people, you become enemy number one. Yeah, and I think uh, Kwame Nkrumah even called the neo-colonial system, and he was way ahead of time in that sense, uh, more dangerous because it, it uh, obfuscate or make less clear 
who is then a colonizer because you used to see clearly okay this is you know mm. the french administration that's clearly mm. a colonizer but now mm. it's mm. more um mm. embedded in a system locally so then it becomes more uh um difficult to identify and, and name it and i think this washington consensus is really important uh more than 40 countries still owe odious debt and uh about two-thirds of the world two-thirds of the world economy has been restructured by these um, yeah and, and, and maybe we also need to that uh, after 1945 what we see them what we see the system doing is also to produce such institutions as the wealthy bank the 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 international monetary fund and the and the all others which in in a way some people call the multilateral institutions uh, but they then constitute what some have called global uh, financial republic it's a global financial republic which really finances the world and the and the and the it is through that system that 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 capital also controls the, the 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 countries of the global south they give them the money they create this debt and then they are attached to 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 they they they, they literally finance the the world the world system uh, the poor countries financing the wealthy system through payment of these debts which you can't even see uh, what they were used for uh, and that is another uh, uh, spoke about the four journeys of capital beginning with uh, uh, the enslavement of black people and they are laboring for free in the in the plantations and then he, he moved on to to talk about the debt as another journey of capital in africa uh, which actually ties africa to 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 to, to the to the to, to service the global north and somebody on the on the chart i saw he put uh, um, uh, Walter Rodney's book, uh, How Europe Underdeveloped uh, Africa. And uh, I think that must also be read together with the work of Semia Amin, who have been using the Marxist uh, science to understand how capitalism operates, particularly how it operates in the periphery. Because the way it operates in, in, the, in the metropole and the way it operates in the periphery is relatively different. Mm, thank you. And um, maybe to give one number as well, and then I have one final question before we go into the break, is that um, the IMF and World Bank, they gave between 1970 and 2003 more than 540 billion in loans. And um, African countries repaid um, 580, so more than that number uh, to these institutions by 2003 over the span of more than 30 years but they still were in debt by 300 billion because you pay a lot of interest rates so then they are kept in perpetual debt and the poverty in this same period increased with 75 uh, percent on the continent and um maybe before we move into the break and then after the break everyone can ask questions and um i aim to make it a more interactive active conversation with everyone but to come back to the let's say central question or theme of this what is decolonization in the 21st century uh, i think we've yeah clearly established how these nation states are this colonial legacy and how colonialism works through it through coloniality 
how how would you see decolonization on what scale would you see and maybe a concrete example that decolonization has really happened can it happen on this big international arena or does it happen more small because it's very difficult to establish something new maybe with all these entanglements um, i think uh, to pitch the decolonial struggle the decolonial struggle must actually operate at two levels it must be planetary because coloniality is planetary but at the same time we needed to stage it from the the states in which we are actually confined so i i, I see i see that 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 two-way uh, approach but at the end of the day it is a planetary problem and they will need really to escalate it to the planetary scale and i think the 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 black lives matter movement was almost the uh, attacking into consciousness into that that idea that this thing need to be fought at a planetary scale in other words if we are fighting at a planetary scale there are a lot of things which we need to do we need to shift from the colonial paradigm of difference to the decolonial paradigm of connections i think that 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 is very important the oppressed people they need to really connect across the borders across the oceans if they are to fight this 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 system and this is a practical uh, advice because the colonialists despite being powerful as individual countries they also work in concert when they want to dominate we can see it in berlin they said they shared among themselves so they are acting in concert now they are they formed a, this big coalition european union they, they 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 work together so there is no way then those which are dominated cannot actually avoid working together to challenge this 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 powerful these powerful forces of domination so there is there is that, that there is that aspect but as you can see practically across the world there is an attempt to 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 isolate some sides of struggles in which to state the decolonial and the universities have been one example of that and the, thanks to the roads must fall movement and the, to the fees must fall movements the universities are actually they've been turned into a site of a, of a, of thinking a strategizing and a fighting a, for for decolonization at various levels one targeting institutional structural changes what we call institutional uh, institutional structures uh, two uh, targeting curriculum uh, three uh, targeting the, the 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 demographics the, the the like in south africa where where there is still a clear demographic uh, imbalance in which a minority dominate in the powerful senates in the in the, in the uh, in the professoriate so there is there is those examples where 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 the 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 issues to be attacked are clearly defined and they, i was also making reference to 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 the black lives matter which mutated into the the the, the fall of the, the the statues across the world which a lot of people saying why attack the statues are saying but this is a symbolic uh, act to show that we are now aware what are the issues and the, and the, and the, and the, by attacking statues in every struggle 
you need to start by attacking the soft targets before you attack the hard targets. So the statues were really a soft targets. It is not that people exhausted their energies in the statues. Those were soft targets which needed to be attacked to announce that the struggle is going into another direction. So to me, I, 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 saw, I, saw, it, I saw it that way. Uh, so the, the, the issue is really, how do we mobilize at a planetary scale against a planetary problem? I think you left us with a beautiful question before we move uh, into the break. How do we do that? Um, so for everyone, we're gonna have a three to five minutes break. Uh, I'll put a song. We don't know how to share a song in the sure. through the Zoom, but I'll share a song uh, video in the link. You can listen to it if you like. It's a protest song against apartheid from a hip hop group uh, during that time when the protests against apartheid were big. And um, after the break, we will have an interactive Q and A. And if you like, you can ask questions via the chat or um, by. Uh, switching off the or on the camera so see you in a little bit of uh, so welcome back everyone for the interactive part feel free to ask questions via the chat or by switching on your microphone uh, just do know we're still recording because sometimes in the q a the most interesting questions and answers are given so uh, just so you know that that's also happening still um, but we have had a question in the chat by Brenda. Um, so thank you, Brenda, for asking this question. And there was also one comment uh, that was also made by Brenda, uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, a book by Walter Rodney, which is a, a tip. I can also really recommend that book uh, to further read on what we were just previously discussing. Uh, so the question is uh, for you, Sabelo. How can the oppressed and colonized Palestinians shift the Israeli settler colonial system that has been supported by colonial powers for more than 100 years? And I think this question also comes from a place where you also see a form of apartheid right now there, of course. Um, so how to, yeah, how can, how can we shift this? Thank you for asking the question, Brenda. Because thank you. Thank you, Max, and thank you, Brenda, for asking that question. It is a... It is an important question, but I don't think the answers to that questions are easy ones, uh, in the sense that uh, uh, <clears throat> fighting against colonialism in its historical sense, as well as in its modern uh, mutation into coloniality, there is no blueprint which can be prescribed, really. Uh, what, 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 what we've seen is that any concessions which we have the legally breathing space which we have has been a product of struggles. And I think when uh, Malcolm X was saying, by all means necessary, he was actually addressing that question. How do you fight uh, colonialism and coloniality? And he says, by all means necessary. And, uh, and I think that was really the attempt to encapsulate uh, what but what the, the, the amount of struggle which needs to be mounted against colonialism. So really, to be honestly, I can't give a blueprint on how to fight it. But what I can say is that the struggle must continue and it must continue by all means necessary. Yeah, 
And I think maybe to add to you, Sabella, from also the previous story, what we've seen is that even if Israeli would stop their settlements and apartheid, let's say, and all these things, um, and you would have either if they go for one or two state solution, I don't think the two state is becoming realistic at this point because they've taken so much of the land, but um, the struggle will even continue after that happened because mm -hmm. you will have second class created a group of displaced and second class citizens, you know, for so many decades. So how do you then, uh, because you see this inequality in South Africa as well way working after apartheid. So also this, uh, the struggle will even continue while the visible part um, mm. or the more expressive colonial part is gone. I think it's also something that we need to, yeah, it's going to be an in intergenerational uh, problem. Mm. Um, is there any other question in the chat? And while people are thinking of questions for in the chat or by unmuting yourself, um, I maybe have another a uh, question uh, related to what you said uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement that you mentioned in the break, uh, which I've um, got me thinking as well. And I was looking for this uh, cartoon. I will share screen one cartoon that I found from South Africa. Um, I'm going to share a screen right now. And for those who are listening it back to audio, uh, you basically see... Um, government officials of the South African government. And they say, we stand with African-Americans over the murder of George Floyd by law enforcers. And then you on the background, you see their own law enforcement uh, killing black people as well. Mm -hmm. And then you see sort of, uh, they have the, I say the facial mask from Corona, both on their ears, uh, eyes, uh, like see here and do no evil reference. Mm -hmm. um, and I found this cartoon very, particular and strong also because um well you also had a few years before that the maricana massacre right where you had mm. black workers being killed for a british mine company when they were mm. demonstrating for better rights so i'm also thinking like what i miss sometimes when being situated in europe is that we have this black lives matter but not all black lives have become equally important in who we remember in terms of mm. state violence right for mm. capitalist mm. death mm. and mm. How can we, yeah, it's still Eurocentric in a way of what mm, it's mm, mm, mm. in the public discourse. I, I, I wanted mm. your thoughts or reflection on it, how you how you looked at it. In fact, um, I think it's, we need to go back to my earlier reflection on, on uh, the social classification of human population in accordance with race and also in accordance with, uh, with gender. Uh, because it is within that that some lives lost uh, their ontological density. If if we can lose, use that term, they lost their they did not they were made not to matter, and they and they, it connects with the African governments uh, and the other governments in the global south also not taking the the lives of the people seriously, because they are reproducing, isn't the global power structure, which I described as the invisible uh, 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 social pyramid of, of ontological densities, a uh, graduated ontological densities. Uh, you can even be as straight that uh, in 2012, when 
when the security forces killed 34 miners in Marikana, uh, can they even shoot two white people in South Africa in the open and on camera? The whole world will be up in arms. But if we are killing black people, there is silence because this is where this issue of lives which matter and lives which don't matter. If, 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 if it was white people, the whole world was going to speak about that, 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 that massacre. But because these people have been trained of their ontological densities and the black governments also don't take, they've not restored the dignity of the people. And you can see it in the anti-colonial struggles when people like, when thinkers like Edward Wilmot Blyden we're talking about African personality. The idea of restoration of the dignity of those who were deemed to be black is part and parcel of, 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 of decolonization. And I don't think we've attained that. Whereby black people themselves, they need among themselves to also take themselves seriously. And their governments seem to be reproducing the colonial technologies of governance including the legal infrastructure, uh, uh, including the, the coercive forces of the state, uh, not to protect the people, but to harass them, to kill them. And uh, it takes me really to beg to Karl Marx's idea long, long ago when he said, workers have no country. If, if you hear a worker saying, my country is particularly in the global south, it doesn't make sense because Generally, the country belongs to the elites, the political elites. And they, they are using the state apparatus, the prisons, the police, the army to brutalize the same people in the same manner that the colonial state was doing. So, so that reproduction, that's exactly the, 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 the typical example of, of, of reproduction of coloniality, whereby a black government also does not uh, accord the people, uh, uh, the called citizens, the, the dignity they deserve. And uh, particularly the basic and the most alienable, which is the, the right to life. Uh, it, is, it is very easy for, for, for black people to be killed, to be killable, uh, if, if, if we can use uh, that, that concept. Uh, we, we have not really the attainment of state sovereignty has not translated really to the restoration of dignity of the black people and the African people. Mm. Thank you. And uh, I know Maup has also sent in a question and, and your last, um, and then I go to you Maup. Your answer also made me think of a quote of Malcolm X where he was saying, we need to go for human rights versus civil rights where you uh, where, where I was thinking of uh, reflecting like, okay, but what if we get our civil rights within the U.S. borders, right? I have a U.S. passport and I get rights. Mm. What about my fellow Africans on the continent? Are mm. they not human too, right? Because then mm, 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 you get a, are they still allowed to have the same dignity mm, as what we're fighting for in the mm, mm, mm. in the U.S.? found it really strong. Uh, Maup, um, you had a question. You can uh, unmute yourself. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, um, uh, there's not too much background noise. But uh, yeah, first of all, thanks for the for the insightful session and very clear. 
Um, you touched a lot of topics. I think like uh, my question is mainly about the idea of self-determination um, of I'm sorry, the idea of self-determination of countries and that it kind of seems to come down to uh, indeed you form a kind of unity in which you can participate in the legal globalized infrastructure, right? Mm. Uh, while these very countries are very diverse um, yet we still, like you also touched upon, like we are rather searching for connections between different uh, groups than like having uh, kind of violent relationships between them. Mm. Um, so it is globalized kind of structure that is uh, still necessary, especially like with like the current technological developments, the way we connect with each other. Um, what is the role of, let's say, a United Nations or like a, a kind of like a global um, institution that tries to kind of like, uh, yeah, get things mm. to run smoothly, but obviously mm. it's kind of like, yeah, mm. it's, it's violent mm. in and of itself. So what, how, how would that look? Like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, um, I thought I'd already uh, mapped my, my my understanding of the United Nations as a major cog in the in the modern world system. That of course. Uh, the United Nations formed after 1945. Uh, it has its own promises, which it made, uh, stopping the scourge of war and and all that, and then promises of self-determination and 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 all that. But at the same time, the United Nations cannot be seen uh, separate from the modern world system structurally. Structurally, it is a core of the modern world system. And I was given an example that. Uh, to, to attain nation state status meant that you are admitted into the United Nations. And the, the admittance itself, you can celebrate it, but at the same time, there is a structure within the United Nations, a, a hierarchy. A, the, the, the former empires are the one with the voting, the veto power. And the, these ones which are emerging after 1945, there are a quantity within the United Nations. There are many, but uh, their power is not as big, reflective of their number. So I, I, I found that to be, to be really, you are accommodated in a system which exists. In other words, you are being accommodated, you end up giving a new lease of life to a system which we are fighting against. That, that, that's how I will put it, particularly for anti-systemic forces, those which wanted to change the system, when they are brought into the United Nations, they are brought into a system which they were trying to change. And they, you can tell from the long speeches which they were giving once they were at the United Nations that they thought, let's continue the struggle even within this institution. And they continued to make demands. And I gave the example of the demand for a new international economic order. And there were many other demands, which until the United Nations itself made the issue of self-determination a human right rather than a principle, it was because of the agitation of the people from the global south. But the system itself, the United Nations is controlled, and we can see it in recent years more by the United States of America. It rubber stems most of, of what the United States of America demands. because it is reflective of the coloniality structure of power uh, at a global scale. And, uh, and uh, sometimes 
it, it pretends to be neutral. It is the United Nations, and we need to put it in quotation marks. Are they really united in the first instant? I don't think so. <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are not united. So this is, this is why sometimes we say it is important to say when they use particular terms, we need to unpack them. What do they mean by this? Do they mean exactly what, what, what they mean? So the United Nations, to me, it becomes another site of struggle. Uh, but in that site of struggle, you are again, you come as, a, as an invited, as an invited guest into it. Uh, and I can see it every time I watch. Uh, as I said, I come from Zimbabwe. President Robert Mugabe was giving long speeches at the United Nations, condemning imperialism. Uh, but every time he was addressing chairs, they leave while he's speaking. And the Mema Katafi was doing the same at, at the United Nations. And immediately comes, they move and they don't even listen. And they, they are just showing you almost a, a meekly finger that, but you can talk, we don't care. So such a system, I don't think is really uh, uh, performing what it promises to be performing. But if you take the, the Prime Minister of Israel speaking at the United Nations, they will be there to listen to what he's saying. Let's not talk about the President of the United States. Everyone listens attentively, <laughs> if, if they are those. So the United Nations is another, another power structure which we need really to, to, to unmask and reveal what it is, not what it pretends to be. Thank you, uh, Sabelo, uh, for this for answering this question. And while you were answering it, I saw other questions coming in. So I have two more. And we might have time for one final after this, but it might be also the last two questions as well due to time. Um, this one is from um, uh, Sarabele. Um, I'm deeply impressed by this presentation. It has helped me to better understand decolonization. And then the question is, how can a state in the era of globalization and multilateralism attain total decolonization? So we talked at the UN, but yeah. how can you attain a decolonization, a state of decolonization in this globalized world? I doubt whether, uh, and again, I thought I already addressed that question that the shift from empire to modern nation states, our organization into modern nation states uh, is not really a radical advancement. It is actually a world system rebooting itself, reorganizing itself, uh, but the logics remain the same. So I think the issue of nation state itself, we need to think about it more carefully. Uh, some, some nowadays they speak about decolonizing the political community. And in that idea of decolonizing the political community, they are thinking, the first step to take is to decouple the nation and the state. They say that was a marriage of convenience. The state is actually predatory on the nation. It's not, it's not really a harmonious uh, marriage of nation and the state. So we will need really to, 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 to decouple the two. So if you, if, if you, if you, if you read the works of um, thinkers like Mahmoud Mamdani, they are pushing that idea that, but what does it mean to decolonize the political community. In other words, they are saying we need to revisit 
political modernity as bequeathed on the world from the global north to the extent that there is repetition of the logics of running of the world from the global north into the global south in its most negative terms. So I remember Mamdani posing the question, why is it that the post-colonial problems of Africa read like the problems of Europe prior to the modern nation state? And they were saying this is how they how the post-colony reproduces the problems of uh, people of a place and the people out of a place. So the nation state is problematic in that sense, in that it creates what a, a, is it Nandita Sharma in this book on home rule, where he creates an where she argues that the problem of the nation state is that it creates a people of a place and a people out of place. And once it does that, it means it operates through the same colonial logic of the paradigm of difference. So I don't think it's really about liberating the nation state. Maybe Marx was right to say we abolish the state, but how, I don't know. <laughs> and, and would you say to give one small part of how that you can see maybe in different countries happening now, for instance, in New Zealand, you saw this, but also uh, in Bolivia and Ecuador with the Buen Vivir being implemented, you see sometimes that a people who had not been recognized by the nation state because, mm. you know, they make one, they fabricate one people, one flag, mm. Mm. one language. Um, and they say now, for instance, with some territories, they, they, they just passed a bill, I think two weeks ago or something in New Zealand, that now if they enter the territories of the, I think it was Maori there, the name of them, mm. uh, they have to consult them and they have to get permission of them mm -hmm. first. So this trend, and you see this happening in some countries now that the nation state says, okay, we, you know what? We recognize there's other people living in this mm -hmm. border mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Do you mm -hmm. think that this part of this effort, how, yeah, how do you reflect on it? Could that be a direction of how to? Of course, um, and thank you for, 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 <clears throat> for reminding me about that because that is the idea of a plurinational state. Exactly. A, pl a plurinational state in which you recognize the diversity of the of the people within within the state, including their uh, diverse conceptions of law or in the jurisprudence, and then you use a graduated legal system in which others wants to be tried under indigenous law, others under modern law. So it, it is a step, uh, I think, in the right direction. But as long as the, the framework is the state, this is where the, the major problem is. And, they, and, they, and, they, and I'm raising this because prior to 1648, prior to the Westphalian uh, uh, Conference of 1648, which actually inaugurates the modern nation state in the European sense, if you moved to Africa, for instance, you had a plurality of political authorities. It was not the nation state everywhere. Other, others were matriarchal societies, others were decentralized societies, others were nomadic. So there was plurality of ways of living. The, 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 the major problem about modernity, modern, colonial modernity is the attempt to make us operate under similar institutions. And these similar institutions are imposed on society from outside the society. They are not emerging from society itself. So, so there is really 
a lot of work in rethinking thinking itself about the best modes of organizing ourselves as, as, as human beings. Is the state the best model of organizing ourselves? Or the state has become actually an albatross in which, 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 which actually oppresses us. But it has naturalized itself that to such an extent that people think, what else, how else can you organize without the state? And they, once you think that way, coloniality has entered you deeply because coloniality survives by naturalizing whatever it produces. It rotinizes whatever it produces. And it therefore then uh, make it impossible to imagine anything else except what it imposed on, on, on this world. And it creates that what it imposed is the only alternative, there is no other alternative. And I think we need to preach that, that and begin to release our imagination from coloniality so that we imagine other ways of organizing ourselves in better ways in accordance with maybe you mentioned the values of Bon Vivia, Ubuntu, Pachamama, and many others. There are many other values which we can draw from rather than to rely on values such as uh, the paradigm of discovery, the values such as the will to power, the values such as survival of the fittest. I think we need to shift it from those and uh, take other, other, other values the values of plurality, the values of mobility, the values of compositionality, if I can put those on, on the table. Thank you, Sabello. And I think this is a good bridge to the final final question from um, Paulina, because um, yeah, you, um, you have to decolonize, but you have to be able to imagine it, right? The imagination has been colonized. What do we think of only the state as a way of governance? So a place where we can imagine new futures, maybe if it changes the university. So this was the um, a question surrounding the university. Maybe you have already partially answered it, but maybe you can answer it in a different way. Um, is how do we push for African knowledge systems to be accepted, especially in the academy? What do you suggest we do uh, to push back on people in the global north who look on African knowledge systems such as proverbs as simply being aphorisms? Yeah, in fact, I think there are two, two processes which we can think of here. The global north needs to de-imperialize if, if the global south is decolonizing. I think it was, a, it was a Kuan Hissing Chen who, who posited that, 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 that complementary move, that the global north needs to de-imperialize. Because even if we decolonize in the global south, if the global north remains imperial, we will still have conflicts because it will still approach us as though we were its spheres of influence. So there is need to shift really in terms of, 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 of thinking about how to live in this world together and how to share the planet Earth as a home for all of us. The idea that they are owners of the planet, then they are those who are admitted to the planet by others. I think this is very problematic as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. Thank you for answering uh, that question. And I love the concept of the imperialized. I was sometimes looking for a word. What is the difference between here and there? Maybe one of them is that uh, from our position here, we need to de-imperialize so we can make sure 
there's knowledge to learn from left behind and not destroyed uh, mm -hmm. by through the imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, so that leaves me for a few uh, practical remarks as a closing. First of all, of course, thank you so much, Sabelo, for making time for us to joining this decolonial learning session. So for those who joined it, uh, again, a reminder, this is on donation basis. If you would like to donate, you can check your email or via our website via the donation button. You can find how to donate. We use these donations to give back also to the speakers that we invite to share knowledge with us. And the recordings will be found on our website and YouTube as well. Um, you can follow us via our Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and uh, thank you all for joining. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope uh, we tried our best to respond to these difficult questions. And uh, I must say, it's, a, it's really a struggle. We need to continue thinking very deeply about these issues. Thank you so much. <laughs>